Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the January 2nd, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Happy New Year, all. With the prodding of exemplary journalism out there, I've got lots of very topical and very intentional programming arranged for you. And today is particularly special. UCI School of Social Ecology Urban Studies professor Scott Bolands will offer for the whole hour a full consideration of what is taking place in and around Jerusalem. So much keeps happening on such a wee piece of real estate. The intention is to focus laser-like on the city itself, bringing out much needed nuance. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the entire hour is Scott Bolins, Professor and Endowed Chair in Peace and International Cooperation, Planning Policy and Design at UCI School of Social Ecology. His research focuses on nationalistic ethnic conflict and urbanism, politically divided cities, urban growth policy, and intergovernmental approaches to planning. Among Scott's many publications on ethnic conflict in divided cities are his books, City and Soul in Divided Cities, Cities, Nationalism and Democratization, On Narrow Ground, and Urban Peace Building in Divided Cities. His latest publication soon out this year is Trajectories of Conflict and Peace, Jerusalem and Belfast since 1994, published by Rutledge. Scott has participated in a prodigious list of national and international forums. The ones pertaining mainly to today's topic, Jerusalem, include RAND Corporation, U.S. Department of State, GIZ Afghanistan, it's a German NGO, Country Risk Management Office, Kabul, United Nations Development Program, Bicommunal Development Program, London School of Economics and Political Science, Crisis States Research Center, Canadian Consortium on Human Security, Comparative Urban Studies Project, Wilson International Center for Scholars, Rockefeller Foundation, Bellagio Center, Jerusalem Institute of Israel Studies, Palestinian International Peace and Cooperation Center, Swedish Institute on the Olaf Palma International Center, Organization of Arab Architects, and American University of Beirut. Scott completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology and possibly still holds relief pitcher records at UCLA. He completed his Master's and Ph.D. in Urban and Regional Planning at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Prior to his 1991 appointment to the UCI faculty, Scott was a professor at the University of UMass Amherst. And now a few words that you won't see on the official profile. Scott whose definitive Ph.D. dissertation on income inequality in the 50 largest U.S. cities had a lucky break as a rapporteur in Salzburg, Austria, on ethnically divided cities. Eventually, while mining the richness of struggling communities around the world, he shoved the hyper-quantitative research to what boiled down to was stories told by urban professionals and community activists. Having signed on to researching conflict in ethnically divided cities has the distinct 
you've got the professional occupational hazard of so many of your cities that you're studying, they're blowing up all at the same time. And we're not going to mention all those because Jerusalem is really, there's so much to cover in so little time. I had been party to some of the research when we previously were married and lived with our children in some very remarkable places while on sabbaticals and lived to tell some of those stories. With all the latest turmoil developing, with the current U.S. regime's designation as Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, Scott is the obvious choice to cover what is going on in the city. Welcome, Scott Bolins, to Ask a Leader. Thank you, Claudia. It's so wonderful to be here, and that was a great introduction, a great way to start the new year. Oh, well, I, the feeling's really mutual. As I, I wanted to promise listeners the intention is to focus laser-like on what is taking place in Jerusalem. The temptation is certainly to fold in an inordinate amount of other factors that are on our domestic side, but we've just got to put those aside. You are the one to break it all the way down to the urban context Jerusalem, every bit of it's got. So it's always been, there's lines drawn. Those lines drawn are fundamental, they're consequential throughout and around the city of Jerusalem. So I'm, you can break it down even further, but I'm looking at, there's before 1948, there's 1967, 1999, 2000. We'll take up the latest line drawn with moving uh, recognizing the capitals, not being in Tel Aviv, and just we'll bring that up in fuller detail. But I want you to give listeners the sort of what those gestures of putting those lines down, what kind of struggles those lines have presented to the ethnic conflict between Palestinians and Israelis in Jerusalem and adjoining West Bank. There's so much to talk about in the history of Jerusalem and uh, Israel-Palestine uh, before 19 before 1948. Israel did not exist as a country, and there was the so-called British Mandate period, where uh, Britain was in control of the of Palestine. In 1947, there was a UN partition plan that uh, said that Israel would be created on 55 percent of the uh, area of of historic Palestine. 55 percent. At that time, Jews, uh, the population of the Jewish uh, uh, Jews. Jewish population in historic Palestine was only about 33%. So the UN re rewarded uh, uh, Jews with the new state of Israel, 55% of historic Palestine. That was very contentious for the Palestinians and Arab population that already existed there. And uh, a war broke out. And in the end, the country of Israel was created in 1948 on what is 79% of historic Palestine. So a huge enlargement of the area and seen as a major injustice on the part of the Palestinians, uh, Palestinian Arabs in the area. So there's the first line drawn, 1948, the uncontested uh, country of Israel established and recognized by the UN, but in a much enlarged area um, uh, and seen as a grievance to the Palestinian Arab population. That's 1948. Then 1967, uh, another war, uh, resulted in the huge enlargement of uh, Israeli Jewish control over um, not just the entire city of Jerusalem, which had up until that point had been divided into two, a western part that was Israeli Jewish. And, and the old city was part of the West Bank. And uh, the eastern part, which was Palestinian Arab and which included the old city. That was 1948 to 1967. 1967, Israeli, uh, the war resulted in Israel controlling all of the city, both west and east, militarily, including the old city. 
and all of militarily occupying all of the West Bank. With just a few modifications, that's the, the condition that exists on the ground today. We have a West Jerusalem that is uh, almost all Jewish. We have an East Jerusalem that is Palestinian Arab, but has been since 1967 the location of major settlement or neighborhood expansion by the Israeli government. We have uh, today about 200,000 Jews that live in East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem internationally is considered contested territory. It is not right, according to the Geneva Convention, for the occupier to affect and change demographic ratios. And that is just what Israel has done since 1967 in inserting and implanting about 200,000 Israeli Jews in East Jerusalem today. Also, the same thing going on in the West Bank since uh, 1967. Today, estimates are there are about 380,000 Israeli Jews that live in the West Bank outside of East Jerusalem. That West Bank is, was, has always been thought of as the home, the future home, of the country of Palestine. And yet now there are 375,000 or so Israeli Jews that live in, in the West Bank. So all told, what we're talking about now is about 600,000 Israeli Jews live in internationally contested areas of either East Jerusalem or in the West Bank outside of East Jerusalem. And, and to give you an opportunity to, to give the spatial relationship, which is extremely consequential, is that these are abutting and they're hilltop. They're sort of like defensible, sort of hilltop, deluxe-looking sort of residential areas, communities, as well as adjacent to the, to the city proper, as we say, so that it, it creates a kind of a flow that's sort of in your nose to... Uh, Palestinians, it's saying we are continuing to build every bit of fact in the ground to say we own every inch of this persistently. It, yeah, definitely. The physical landscape of, of Jewish, I'll just say Jewish neighborhoods and Jewish settlements is significantly different than, than Palestinian villages and neighborhoods. The, the Israeli uh, settlements and neighborhoods are fully supported by the state. So you have huge construction, huge clustered modern construction, much like you might see in Orange County. Uh, whereas the Palestinian, uh, due to their disempowerment and the lack of a real functioning government uh, and the powers of, of having a government, uh, those villages are unsupported by any public authority. So you have a kind of a hodgepodge, ad hoc uh, pattern of village development by Palestinian Arabs next to fully modernized, uh, fully uh, protected Israeli settlements or Israeli neighborhoods. So just on the ground, besides the numbers and the implantation of, of Jewish uh, population in contested areas, just on the ground, the physical landscape just exacerbates what psychologists talk, talk about as relative deprivation, uh, that it is in the face of the Palestinian Arabs. Every day they wake up and they live in downtrodden, unserviced areas next to highly serviced uh, very modern, very efficient, and state-supported Israeli settlements, Israeli neighborhoods. And what about and the right-of-way differential as well? The, the highways versus the, the checkpoints and meandering roads and that kind of thing. We'll get to the wall later, but, but mm -hmm. sort of that, that differential, too, of the flow of, yeah. of commuting. Yeah, the highway system itself is, is quite demarcated, so there are really roads that service uh, Israeli neighborhoods in East Jerusalem and, and connect them to Israeli settlements out in the West Bank. 
These are modern roads uh, protected by, we'll talk about the separation barrier. Right. Protected by the separation barrier. And Palestinians, on the other hand, uh, they could use these roads, but these roads go from typically a Jewish neighborhood to a Jewish settlement, so they they don't use these roads. Does this act like an expressway, in a sense? Yeah, it's an expressway for Israelis, and uh, it's not connecting anything that is of benefit to the Palestinian community. So Palestinians, to get around, in and around uh, the outskirts of Jerusalem, have to take this really convoluted path a very underdeveloped, a very underdeveloped road uh, marked by constant checkpoints, uh, Israeli checkpoints. So to get around Jerusalem is, get in and through and around Jerusalem is a major hassle for Palestinian Arabs. And so the roads are just one of various ways that Israel uses to, to fragment Palestinian society, both within East Jerusalem and outside in the, in the larger West Bank. The, also the it's uncertain whether some whether Palestinians can even get through a checkpoint. There, there is no guarantee that after a long wait they get in, get into the city, get yeah. into Israel. Mobility is highly restricted by the checkpoints, and it's restricted by an identification card system, so that if you're a Palestinian and you don't have a Jerusalem ID, it is very unlikely that you'll be able to get into Jerusalem, even if that was the place of your of your your job your job yeah. earlier. So there's those restrictions, and like many other things that Israel does, they restrict these identification cards. And if Palestinians are not living, if, if they cannot prove that the center of their life is Jerusalem, Israel will pull and restrict those identification cards. It will, it will oh take goodness. those identification cards away from Palestinians. So it's, it's uh, there's, I mean, the key thing to understand about the Israeli regime, if you will, is it's a multi-layered, very sophisticated set of restrict restrictions on Palestinian life, both within East Jerusalem and in the larger West Bank. Well, when you were talking about the lack of government structure, I want you to also uh, include in that the aspect of building permits that uh, Palestinians are availed or not. Yeah. Within East Jerusalem, first of all, uh, Israel controls all of Jerusalem. It identifies Jerusalem as its eternal and undivided capital. And Israel has controlled the city council and the regional bodies that govern uh, Jerusalem and certainly the central government of, of Israel. And it's through this uh, method that Israel has enacted a whole set of restrictive policies making it extremely difficult for Palestinians to build in East Jerusalem. Matter of fact, the estimate is that about 10% of the total land of East Jerusalem, only in those areas are Palestinians allowed to pull and get a building permit. Uh, only 10% of the land area of East Jerusalem. And it, there's a, it's an intricate set of planning tools that Israel uses, both through the, the plans themselves, which demarcate all sorts of areas for green areas and environmental protection, which is, is one way of Israel fact in the uh, restricts Palestinian development, the, the uh, horizontal expansion of Palestinian villages, uh, both through those plans that identify where growth can go and where it can't go, but also through the building permit process itself, which has a bunch of conditions which, due to the in, in inherent attributes of Palestinian society, oftentimes they don't have. Uh, another uh, one example is a lot of Palestinian 
land is not um, registered, formally registered. That's a legacy of the history of the area. That's It was under Ottoman uh, rule for quite a while and then Jordanian rule. Those societies don't have land modern Western land registration per se. So Israel says the Palestinians need to have their land registered before they get a building permit, but Arab society doesn't really have that aspect to it, a formal land registration. So Israel can say, well, we're just applying normal Western good planning practice to Palestinian areas, fully know, uh, knowing full well that Palestinians won't be able to, to uh, have the characteristics and the attributes to get those building permits. So, and actually, there's there's Palestinians that we meet in in Orange County that they're they're here because there's an economic deprivation of them trying to keep work in in around Jerusalem. They're here, but they've got to keep going back to sort of keep their their title act to, to sort of possess their property. So mm -hmm. there's there's so many so many barrels over which they are. Well, for those of you who've just tuned in, my guest for the full hour is Scott Bolins, professor and endowed chair in peace and international cooperation planning policy and design at UCI School of Social Ecology and his latest book out is Trajectories of Conflict and Peace Jerusalem and Belfast since 1994 we're talking about the intricate facts in the ground the the sort of process that I you could say that the the Israeli government's not putting their finger on the scale they're sitting on it it's like every 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 kilo they've got is sort of uh, unleveling the playing field. Well, and and I asked you to say I was sort of facile in asking for some demographic information. But if any listener wants to look up online any of this kind of uh, this fact, these facts, everything, every designation is politically charged. Is where where do you draw the line? What where, where are you taking in? What do you consider? You know, Jerusalem and that and you know and beyond is it's all it's all fraught and politically charged. So I recall a, a visitor's guide to Jerusalem that admonished everyone to, th to consider that the feel and the operation of the place as a small town. I don't know if it still feels like a small town in that way, but with that kind of intimacy in place, I've, I've just always been sort of curious about what it's like to be a researcher with your, your English-only investigation. How does that work? Yeah, some background here. I've, I've spent um, about seven months total in living in Jerusalem and really living in Jerusalem, not as a... Over the many years. Yeah, I, the, main, the main two years are 1994, right after the Oslo Agreement, and then 2015, more recently. Uh, and I do interviews. I've done over two, 125 interviews with uh, government officials on both sides, uh, community activists, even some that are from, well, from from more aggressive sectors of society. Um, that's a lot of what I do, the, the interviews, and I tell their stories about what it's like living, working in these, uh, in Jerusalem. So that's a little bit in the way of background. Uh, the only language I know is English, so everything is in English. What's it, what's it like uh, there. Um, English is widely spoken. Uh, the, Pal the Palestinian population actually is probably more versed in English than the Israeli population. Um, they both can speak English quite well. Israelis, for the most part, uh, speak it uh, not reluctantly, but it's a little bit more difficult for them to, to find exact words than it is for Palestinians. That's really interesting. Well, yeah. there's that's, But there's the underclass, sort of, that 
they're having to double down with more survival coping skills. So add yeah. another language. Now, now, granted, also a lot of my interviews are with people that are uh, educated, and a lot of the Palestinians have been educated uh, not in Palestine but elsewhere, either in Western Europe or United States. So that's where they they get their their English skills. You know, there's always a bias if you're if you're t- doing interviews in English. You know, I'm speaking my language; they have to adjust to me. So there's always that bias, and I I readily recognize that. But um, having said that, English is usually not a barrier at all. Only a few of my interviews have had to be um, translated on site. Most of them are in English. And I feel that I'm getting genuine, real information from them and that they are communicating clearly what they want to communicate. Partly it's the way I interview. Um, uh, not, not I, My interview style is not one of like aggressively asserting American... Um, uh, ideology or anything like that upon them. It's really to listen to them and to respect them as individuals, and that allows them that, that more relaxed space to, to talk about things in a clear way. Well, I think of the one dimension while one is living in a community as what's sort of the the kind of the, con- the, the, the banter that's going on in Israeli and Arabic and sort of what's being said. And I remember the palpable tension from time to time. There might have been fisticuffs around in the street because of somebody provoking mm-hmm. one another. And so that sort of the informal conversation that's going on, trying to sort of reach and interpret from some of that is always that 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 always that, that frustrated me mm-hmm. in 94, 95 when I thought, you know, so what was that? And yeah. what what led up? What was uttered before these guys were like throwing fists at each other because it, it did it did happen mm-hmm. well i guess the moment we're waiting for is let's we, we do visuals on on ask a leader all the time so i'd like for you to give us a look at how the walls that snake around the city and all over west bank i want you to give us every palpable detail the location the height the width the material and the overall feel because you've spent a lot of time transversing this wall and I, for instance how long is it because it snakes all over the place yeah the wall is what was the biggest thing that's different between uh when i was there in 94 and when i was there in 2015 the wall started to be created in 2004 basically is when it started to be constructed and the wall was created um out of a sense of israel's need to protect themselves to to maintain security to increase security the early 2000s was an absolutely horrific time. There were uh, bombings of buses in Jerusalem, just and lo- major loss of Israeli Jewish life. It was a horrific, horrific time for Israel. And they said, let's create, let's, let's finally do what we really don't want to do and create a wall. And the reason why I say that is this wall does divide historic Palestine. And Israel, for the most part, is not supporting division they want more what they call unification i.e you might read into that Mm. more is israeli occupation and control dividing uh if if any way is not something israel is that fond of doing so they did reluctantly and this was prime minister sharon did reluctantly say let's build a military leader though a military leader let's build the darn wall the wall is when it's it's about 70 percent constructed it's to separate Israel from the West Bank, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now, uh, and get back to that. There's so much more, I yeah, know. Yeah, get back to that detail. But the, <laughs> it's 70% built. When it's totally built, it's going to be about 440 miles long. Now, 
15% of that wall runs along the green line. The green line is what separates uncontested country of Israel from what we in the West call the West Bank. So 15% of it only. Now, the reason why that's important is it is legitimate and lawful to build a wall on your own territory. We have a president of the United States that's doing it right now. That is, that is internationally lawful to do, to build it on your own territory. But? But in Israel, only 15%, one five, is built along that green line. 85% of it cuts in, cuts eastward into what we call the West Bank. Over the green line, Over and the what green the line. UN acknowledges is an, uh, an occupation by Israel. Exactly. So 85% of it cuts into the West Bank, and sometimes cuts into it as, many, as much as 11 miles into the West Bank. Now, Israel is doing that to take in as many Israeli settlements as possible. You extend the, the wall eastward, you, are, you can take in and basically de, de facto annex uh, these Israeli settlements that are built in the western part of the West Bank. And through this, Israel estimates that they can take in about, I believe it's about 70% of the Israeli uh, settlement population in the West Bank. And so that's why Israel's doing that, creating, uh, building this wall. That building of the wall is internationally illegal because it's being built on internationally con contested territory. It's not being built on what uh, the international community sees as the state of Israel. But it's it's contested. But but they're there. There's nothing more absolute than the presence of that those the, that wall system. And can you mm -hmm. can you describe it's uh, as well the effect of that convoluted wall in walling off not just the commute but walling off uh, uh, separating commute Arab community from Arab community. Substantial adverse effects on the pal on Palestinian life. Uh, first of all, cutting Palestinians out from areas where their work their workplace was so in the Jerusalem their market their, yeah. their, their workplace and their products so in the Jerusalem area uh, separating them from areas of their livelihood they may have lived east of Jerusalem matter of fact there's a lot of Arab neighborhoods just east of, of the um, what we say is Jerusalem um, and the, the wall separates them from their livelihood separates them from uh, people they know, um, also other family members. Just to get to a family feast, it may not, it may not happen because of those walls. It may not happen, especially if you do not have a Jerusalem identification, a Jerusalem ID card. You're stuck, if you're Palestinian, on the east side of that wall. The wall also, throughout the West Bank, uh, fragments Palestinian villages from uh, their uh, vineyards, from uh, their agricultural areas and just makes it incredibly difficult to move around uh, in the West Bank. And to give you a sense, Claudia, of, of the wall, about it's, it's actually better to call it a separation barrier uh, because it's not always a wall. As a matter of fact, 90% of the barrier is a, kind of a multi-layered fence system. Um, the Israeli Defense Force, its preferred design is having three fences, um, barbed wire on the two outer fences, and then a large um, zone in between. As a matter of fact, usually about a 200-foot-wide exclusion zone in between the two outer fences. It's fully patrolled uh, typically by Israeli IDF, is Israeli Defense Force personnel. 
possibly young people, tense, uh, lesser trained people with trigger hair uh, weapons. <laughs> In astoundingly very young people, 20 year old um, uh, men and women carrying what they're, they call taser, um, uh, I think they're called taser, uh, taser rifles, uh, semi-automatic oh. rifles. Um, and Israel fully in control of this multi-layered fence system. So that's about 90%, but what we see in Jerusalem is very much different. In Jerusalem, well, Before you leave the yeah. wall, though, just one thing I, I noticed uh, just recently I hadn't realized before was there, as part of that system is a very soft kind of uh, sort of sand material that allows the Israeli guards to see whether there's been any foot traffic over that. So, it's, I mean, it's like every possible way of monitoring any kind of yeah. breaching that wall, that barrier. Yeah, that's interesting. And there's all sorts of what they call intrusion detection equipment all around these fences. Israel excels in what they call anti-terrorism uh, technology. Israel leads the world in this. A lot of our technology that we're getting to fight uh, extremism in this country comes from and originated in Israel. Israel is, some people are saying Israel ex is exporting the occupation. That Israel, it's the products of control and exploitation and monitoring are being exploited as products now to all sorts of other countries that are dealing with these issues of, of extremist action, which is a interesting uh, kind of horrible thought to think, think through the implications of that. Yeah. So that's the multi-layered fence. But the, the, in Jerusalem, you can't do that because you don't have as that much land. People are very close together. So in Jerusalem, you yes. do have a wall. You do have a wall that's usually about 10 feet high. Yeah, That's I, tall. I, actually, not 10 feet. I, I should say uh, the, it, the wall is, is typically 10 feet wide. Right, right. Um, it's as high as 26 feet high. Okay, it's two and a half stories. Um, that's... And this wall separates. On one side is dense Palestinian urban fabric. And on the other side is is Jerusalem per se. Rancho Santa Margarita or something. <laughs> Rancho Santa Margarita. So and so we see this wall construction much more more common in the denser urban areas and especially in Jerusalem. So the wall is this very in your face, formidable object. In a certain way it's become normalized, which is odd to say because people's activity patterns adjust to this wall. But on the other hand, it's a real, um, you know, it's a horrible sign. Some people talk about walls as being a sign of defeat. It's a sign of defeat of any sort of um, push toward reconciliation or peace. When you see a wall, it's admitting defeat. It's admitting that we, this, we cannot agree. So we are going to try to divide ourselves through this physical apparatus. So what does it look like you've been on both sides trans as I said transfer the the wall what are I mean like with the Berlin wall there there was art on one side or there there's uh, or even on the wall uh, separating Mexico from the US there's different ways each side expresses themselves if they mm -hmm. can but maybe that's maybe that's part of the, uh, the Israeli official gestures maybe that you can't make art on the the Palestinian side or they're they're not how how are they both sides treating those Barriers very different um, billboards on, on the western side the Israeli side if you will the, uh, It's just a, a basically a blank wall, but on the Palestinian side. It's full of Opposition graffiti they can get right up to that part. They can get right up to it uh, The famous graffiti artist Banksy has been very prolific in doing all sorts of world-famous graffiti uh, art on the uh, east on the eastern side of the wall 
uh, you know, Israel doesn't really care about the eastern side of the wall. So, you know, any, you know, anybody can do almost anything there except try to climb over it. Um, Israel just wants to contain people behind that wall. Uh, so they don't really regulate what is drawn on the wall or anything like that. So you see massive graffiti, much like we saw in the Berlin Wall. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest for this whole hour is Scott Bolins, and we're talking about, because he's the one and the only, to talk about what kind of nuanced information that just isn't making it in. I mean, the uh, the Israelis can more show dissent about what the status quo is than than Americans can is that I mean that's that's another sort of a political kind of nuance that's sort of lost over the side of the pond. Yeah, Israelis can register uh, resistance. You're saying dissent of the status quo. They can, but the Israeli left is in a horrible situation and is being overwhelmed and dominated by uh, most of the Israeli population, which is is centrist right at best and, it is and and even even right of center um, and the israeli left has had an ex- extremely difficult time their major challenge was that the major episodes of of violence against israeli society the horrific violence of the early 2000s and and even the violence when i was there in 2015 uh, there were stabbings on the street every day and usually the targets were israelis uh, young Palestinian boys with a kitchen knife, 13 years old, and they wake up in the morning and they feel totally hopeless, and they say, "Well, I'm going to do something about this." Um, and and it was it was difficult times in 2015. So it's it, the Israeli left always has to confront that, uh, much like the the left in the United States. Uh, you know, what do you do about quote unquote extremism? What do you do about this violence that is getting at the heart and soul of our society? So the Israeli left has had a very difficult time. Um, one thing about Jerusalem, particularly, that is particular is is especially problematic, is is Jerusalem population, the the Jewish population of Jerusalem, is has become and is much more right wing and ultra orthodox than the rest of the Israeli population. In Jerusalem, thirty four percent of the population now is ultra orthodox. Wow, that is. Yeah. And another. And that's th- in your book. It's not. This comes That's from a Jerusalem Institute of Israeli okay. Studies, which is an Israeli think tank. And another 32% are, are Israel def- surveys and defines it as religiously observant. So we're talking about 66% of the population that is strongly tied to r- religiosity. Compare that to Israel as a whole, only about, well, not only, but 32% of the population is ultra-Orthodox or religiously observant. So 32% overall in Israel, but in Jerusalem, you have 66% of the population that has uh, religious and political views that are definitely right of center, that are not uh, amenable toward reconciliation with with Palestinians. And that makes it extremely difficult. There was a person I interviewed years ago, Mehran Benvenisti, who's a leading Israeli scholar, and he says that because of all the distortions and restrictions in Jerusalem, over time it's going to become a battleground of bigots. Quote, unquote, a battleground of bigots. And what he meant by that was distortions in an urban fabric create such animosities and such antagonisms that it attracts people with extreme views and and makes people's views more extreme. So on the Jerusalem side, we have what I just mentioned. And on, on the, the Palestinian side, it's still to be seen, but the thinking is that over time, that, that 
Palestinian population in Jerusalem is is prone to becoming more extremist in their views. Oh, radicalized. Uh, radicalized. With that, all the gestures they yeah. live amidst. Well, I, I want to back up a little bit before you keep uh, explaining that part, is that it's not an organic development that there are so many ultra-Orthodox, Orthodox Jews living and residing in Jerusalem. That was, a that was, was it not, a kind of almost a foreign domestic policy agenda of Israel is to bring in sort of very observant Jews from Eastern Europe, from Russia, and they're all sort of, tell me where else, uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. And they're, they were given huge incentives to start settling in around Jerusalem and around the West Bank that would become a part of Jerusalem's abutting communities. Yeah, the story of the incentives that the state of Israel has given to Jews throughout the world to settle in Israel is a major part of this. I mentioned before in the 1920s, the Jewish population of historic Palestine was about 33%. So to build a new state of Israel, Israeli government had to encourage strong in, in migration into this new new state to, to boost the numbers and to strengthen it. That's a major story. Now, part of that was the ultra-Orthodox that, that came from other parts of the world, but also uh, people from throughout the world of all sorts of different religious uh, attitudes, Jewish uh, religious attitudes. Um, so it's a major story. The ultra-Orthodox is part of it. The reason why the ultra-Orthodox is, is so strong in Jerusalem is their natural growth is so extensive. They have so Big many families. children. Yep. They have, I don't know what the average is, eight children eight children or so. That's is, an average. So some might have a, a few more, but an, an, yeah. and more and less. Yeah. And, and that's that's their religious mission, if you will, is, be is to be fruitful and multiply and to claim what is rightfully rightfully theirs. The interesting thing, we don't have to get into it now, but, but the ultra-Orthodox, historically, and this, seem, well, this will seem very ironic to your listeners, the ultra-Orthodox for years had no interest at all in Zionism and the creation of the state of Israel. They, the ultra-Orthodox were non-political. They just wanted to, and they don't to, serve in to the practice and read the Torah. Right, until, yeah. Yeah. More recently, in the last 10, 15 years, the ultra-Orthodox have organized more politically, and now they throw a lot of political weight around, uh, particularly in, in the Jerusalem affairs that we're talking about today. Um, so it's an interest, interesting dynamic, uh, fascinating history about the ultra-Orthodox in, in uh, Jerusalem. In the United States, we would call these Orthodox Jews, um, ra rather, or I think that's true, but um, ones that uh, do not serve in the military and uh, practice and read the Torah, as a living. Uh, daily, as a living, yeah. So I guess we've already blown the cover here, but uh, one uh, living living around there, and I remember meeting people and congregating, tr actually having an uncomfortable one meeting with a Palestinian and uh, a Jew in the same place, in our apartment actually, but I, re I learned then, but I, I think it's probably very hardened now, that there is no such thing as being neutral. You can't, you, you are either one or the other position. You are not saying, I, you know, I support both sides. It is, it is you don't get to. It is, it is difficult in all sorts of the areas that I've studied. The dichotomous situation is present where you're forced, many people feel forced to make a decision. And especially in violent communities, those that even with those that would be more amenable to pursuing peace and more political left, say, um, are stuck with a moral quandary. Uh, but, and that forces people to dichotomize. I have had the pleasure, though, of 
meeting many, many Israelis that have more middle ground um, attitudes and more atti attitudes more uh, amenable toward uh, a peace agreement with Palestinians. And the most fascinating Isra Israelis to me are those that say what we're doing is counterproductive yeah. to Judaism and to Israelism in, in the world. What we are doing through assert asserting and occupying in the end will come back to haunt us and will not let us live peacefully in a country of Israel. Just just the reverse. It's creating tension. It's creating conflict that's, that is seemingly and is unending as it's currently manifested without anything changing the pattern of violence, the, the pattern of Israeli um, domination is spawning Palestinian resistance and extremism. And when Palestinians then engage in extreme acts, Israel's reaction has always been not to take a self-reflective attitude and say, maybe what we're doing is causing this violence. But instead, they look at this and say, we need to to hammer down even more severely. We need to, to strengthen our presence on the ground even more severely, and we need to dominate even more. Uh, and that leads to this endless, vicious cycle that constantly reproduces itself. It's, Radicalizing it's, your opponent it's, over it, and over. Over and over. And, over. and that's why, you know, people, your audience and those that are just generally informative about the topic you know you're, you're probably your your general impression is this is just unending this continue continuously is unending and that really is the dynamic that we're in right now and, and that's and the have been in that's the status quo that was the status quo so i'm asking you in a very personal way what first went through your mind when you heard our current president say we're moving the capital from tel aviv to jerusalem we're recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Unvarnished. This is community yeah. radio. <laughs> Duplicitous naivete. So naivete because he feels, and those behind him feel that he can just make this seemingly simple declaration, and 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 that you know end end of this issue. Let's move on to something else. That's the naivete, not aware of the complexities of the situation or consequences. It's duplicitous because hiding underneath that naivete is, in my opinion, the goal of fully supporting Israel by establishing an embassy in Jerusalem and not saying whether it's in West Jerusalem or East Jerusalem, but just saying it's in Jerusalem is validating Israel's stance that is that Jerusalem is the united and eternal capital of Israel. Which was like the end of the end of all talks between Arabs and Israelis. That would be the... That the, was, the, that was like the linchpin, but it's sort of like, this isn't even a negotiation. It's a concession mm -hmm. in the wrong order of negotiations. Exactly. And, and the president, he cited the Jerusalem Embassy Act, um, in his declaration, and if you read the Jerusalem Embassy Act, that was put forth by the Republican Congress years ago, and it, in that, it totally validates uh, Israel's uh, view of Jerusalem as undivided and united. So by making the declaration and linking it to the, to the, to the American Jerusalem Embassy Act, he is wink, wink, giving the nod, saying, okay, we've totally validate and support uh, Jerusalem as the undivided and united capital of, of Israel. And 
Jerusalem has always been considered an issue that was to be solved, a so-called final status, right. an issue that was, that was to be determined through negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians. There is a way out. I mean, the, the, what Israel wants is for Jerusalem to be their capital, so let's put it in West Jerusalem. And Palestinians want Jerusalem to be its capital. Let's put that in East Jerusalem. That is a way out to share the city. Uh, Israel says that's dividing the city. Palestinians say that's sharing the city. Big difference in yeah. how you claim that. Right. Um, but Israel does not want Palestinians to have a capital in East Jerusalem. And as we've talked before, they're doing everything uh, imaginable to make it very hard for Palestinians to live and work in East Jerusalem. They want Jerusalem as it's, again, undivided and united capital. Um, so if Trump was to make the statement that he wants, he, we, we're going to put the embassy in West Jerusalem, and if he then laid out a roadmap for how East Jer Jerusalem would become the capital of Palestine, that would have been a move forward in peace, and that would have been more, um, more reflective of the realities on the ground. You know, Trump talked about, well, he's just saying something to reinforce the realities on the ground. That is totally ridiculous because the realities on the ground is that Jerusalem is psychologically and functionally a very divided city. When you're in Arab East Jerusalem, you are in an entirely different city than the Israeli parts of Jerusalem. In Though, every way, the yeah. feel, the look, the smell, the, yeah. the pace, the, yeah. the temperament, I mean, you could say. The temperament, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the realities on the ground. And if an American leader wanted to really move, move peace forward, he would have been much more aware and uh, declare something that would be reflective of those realities on the ground, those, those political realities. And instead, we get this simple declaration. Uh, and that's why I say it's really, it's, it's duplicitous naivete, which is something that I think our president is very, very good at doing. And we see... This morning, the breaking news is the Netanyahu regime in Israel is they're getting a move on now with all their plans to occupy and annex more of the West Bank, which is very strategically various areas in uh, adjacent to Jerusalem. That it's sort of a, a cascade effect, as they say. This is where things get really, really complicated. Uh, what the listeners should know is the most current things going on is just more of the same. Um, but it's very steroids now. It's yeah. a, 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 a more toxic steroid than yeah. before. It's it's very uh, disingenuous in many ways what Israel is doing right now. Uh, the most simple thing is the Likud party of, of Netanyahu wants um, Israel to annex all of the West Bank uh, and and bring it under state control. Currently, the West Bank is militarily occupied by Israel and under military administration. And you might think, well, what difference does that mm. make? That, that allows Israel to have this, um, this mask, if you will, that uh, they're, not, uh, they're temporarily controlling uh, the West Bank. But Likud party wants to just say, f forget about the pretense and let's just annex and take Israeli state law directly into the West Bank. Uh, that's what's going on with the Likud party. The two other things dealing with Jerusalem per se. Now this gets this is kind of specific, and it might kind okay. of it kind, might kind of twist the the minds of your of your listeners. Twist the first them. the first thing they want to do is create a law that says that it, it makes it much harder to uh, transfer any land in Jerusalem to another political entity, i.e., a potential state of Palestine. So they raised the threshold of how many votes would be needed in the legislative uh, 
Knesset, Israeli Knesset, Parliament, yeah. the number of votes that would be needed to transfer land from Jerusalem to another foreign country. So that's making it harder. That's making it much harder to uh, share, politically share, or politically divide uh, Jerusalem in the future. The other thing, this is even more complicated, the wall at certain parts in Jerusalem actually cuts into the municipal space of Jerusalem. And it's, it's hard for listeners to, imagine, to, to view this, but in certain areas, the wall now, you could be living in Jerusalem, but you're now east of the wall. Now, n- not coincidentally, these areas are highly populated by Palestinians. So it was always seen that- Can we the, take the double negative out of it? It's intentionally cutting out Palestinians from it, the west side of the green line. It seems, it seems to be. It's not, it, it, it's too, yeah. Uh, so, so we have these areas. They're they're called they're Kafar Akab um, and the Shofat refugee camp area. Today, about uh, estimates eighty to one hundred thousand Palestinian Arabs live in Jerusalem, but now east of the separation barrier, which is very bizarre. So the thinking always is that at some point Israel is going to try to detach these areas from the city of Jerusalem, and this is what now. Uh, the, the Knesset is is in the early stages of, of attempting to do. Um, and in fine Israeli government uh, style, they want to detach these areas from Jerusalem, but not give them to Palestinians, but to, to create Israeli municipal councils that would now control these areas that would be detached from Jerusalem. Scott, is, is your impression of uh, the coverage inside Israel, is there a mention of a wink at the irony of this, that it looks a hell of a lot like a Warsaw ghetto, only it's Palestinian and it's twenty, the, the 21st century? Do well, they say that? I mean, we've heard the apartheid term applied yeah. over and over with annexation of the West Bank and the due process mm-hmm. discrepancies and that kind of a thing. But d- this sounds like a Warsaw ghetto 21st century style. Do they say that in the press there? Or dissidents? It, the the, Amer- the, uh, the Israeli left and the more enlightened Israeli sectors will will bring this out and bring out the ironies. A lot of foreign observers bring out these ironies. Former President Jimmy Carter talked about the apartheid going boy. on in Israel and was battered down substantially. By your colleagues in some of the special parts of this campus. Okay. So, so there's that parallel with apartheid. So, you know, this this thing of detaching areas from Jerusalem and creating these municipal councils, which n- have w- nobody has any idea what would be, that really reflects back to what really was created with the black townships in apartheid South Africa, where blacks were given their some form of government, but it was totally under resourced, and it was just a total mask for for discrimination and inequality. So the parallels with with apartheid in South Africa I've made in the past with um, in in various venues and uh, many of the things going on do um, follow that pattern of apartheid very well. This separation and division, the inequality that's imposed, the domination that's imposed spatially on the ground, politically in terms of services, etc. Um, I've said, if I have time, I've said that there's two uh, examples, two 
of the examples of the most successful urban planning programs in the world have been apartheid South Africa and the Israeli planning system. And what I mean by successful is successful in achieving their political goals. Uh, apartheid did that, and the Israeli planning system, this wholehearted, comprehensive approach of asserting Israeli uh, control, facially and functionally, uh, has been very, very successful in creating a very strong Israeli control over the whole area of historic Palestine today. Not without problems, which we can't talk about because of time. It is creating f uh, problematic feedback and problems that get in the way of that hegemonic uh, project. But for the most part, for now 50 years, Israel has, has exercised full control and, and hegemonic authority and territoriality over very contested areas. And the West, including this country, have basically allowed them to do it, if not outright supported it. I was going to ask you the unwieldy question at the end, but I think you're, you've signaled a sort of an answer. And I want to change. Uh, instead of asking you whether you're at all hopeful at this point, I, I get a, a sense that it's very despairing at this point. I would rather instead give you a shorter question is, what are the best sources for people to follow what's really going on? Where's the best coverage coming? Because it's all about really understanding what's going on. Yeah, if you want to know more about kind of the specifics of Jerusalem in particular and the West Bank, there is a very, and this, these, these both have online presence, uh, there is an Israeli organ, non-governmental organization called Beth Selim, B-T, actually it's B um, apostrophe T-S-E-L-E-M, is a very, very good source. Dot um, org? Are we gonna, uh, I can find dot, it. Dot org. Okay. Yeah, Beth and Selim. And another one is called Ir Amin. That's I-R, second word, A-M-I-M. Those are two very progressive, non-governmental organizations, Israeli organizations. That, they both are. That track a lot of what I've been talking about today. Well, Scott, that is all the time we have. I'm really glad that we could do this today. As am I. It's been a pleasure, Claudia. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. Thank you for making the time today. So that was Scott Bolins, my guest here on Ask a Leader, urban and regional planning professor at UC Irvine. Let's give it. And the chair, uh, he is at the endowed chair of the Peace and International Cooperation, Planning and Policy Design at UCI School of Social Ecology. His latest publication, everybody look out, published by Rutledge Press, is Trajectories of Conflict and Peace, Jerusalem and Belfast since 1994. That's, we're going to close out with a track, Dasa, Maisa Da, and Kafia is Arabic for enough. So that's, uh, as I said, this is my wrap. Next week, I'll devote the whole hour to UCI's science policy group, Richard Prince, Christy Morales, and Alex McDonald, an entirely revved up group of STEM graduate students who refuse to take the current political status quo sitting down. Many of them will join others tonight on a regular basis too, later on this month and throughout the year at Meetup. It's a Meetup, you can check it out online. Brews and Brains. Science never looked better for us lay types in the way they put that together. Talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening. And once again, Happy New Year. Yeah.